0: Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 3, John 3 and verse 3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what did Jesus mean by that statement? When we see the term born again in the Scripture or terms that have a similar meaning, How are we to understand those terms? There's been a great deal of misunderstanding connected with the term born again in terms of how it relates to Scripture. You may have a particular conception of what the term means from a scriptural standpoint, but is your understanding correct or could it be incomplete? Could it be even wrong in certain respects? Because of the confusion and misinformation that has been disseminated about the idea of born again, I want to discuss it in depth. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, as we just read. And that implies that it's important to have a correct understanding of this subject. So it ought to be worth our time and effort to investigate it since Jesus said, if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, I think it's important that we understand what that term means thoroughly and and properly. A complete examination of this subject will take more than one sermon. It will take at least two and possibly more sermons to cover this subject in depth because there's a lot more to it than some might... uh, Believe To begin our discussion of born again, I want to take a step back and examine how metaphors are used in Scripture. Some scoffers deny the truth of the Bible and call everything in the Bible into question, especially the historical rec- record presented in the Bible. Such de- detractors often relegate almost everything in the Bible to the realm of myth and fantasy, and seek to undermine the authority of Scripture at every turn, all this while spinning wild fables and fantasies of their own. On the other hand, there are those who champion a literal interpretation of the Bible, as they they often put it, a literal interpretation of the Bible. And. That's fine if by a literal interpretation one means that the Bible conveys literal truths such as the truth that Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus' birth was actually a virgin birth, literally a virgin birth. Or the truth that Jesus actually died and was literally resurrected from the dead? That God actually created the heavens and the earth by whatever means he used to do that? Or that Adam uh, or that uh, well Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and other biblical personages personages were real people? If that's what one means by believing in, in the Bible literally, then that's fine. On the other hand, we need to understand that there are many figurative expressions or metaphors used in the Bible which, if taken literally, would be misleading and often nonsensical. Metaphors are often employed to illustrate that which may be more abstract, unfamiliar, or difficult to understand by likening it to that which is common, well-known, and understood. Metaphors are used graphically to, I uh, sh- should say, too graphically and concisely express complex ideas that would be difficult, if not impossible, to express any other way. Think of all the implications of the terms shepherd and sheep when applied to Jesus Christ and His people, respectively, for example. Now, we all know that, that, Jesus, that uh, Jesus Christ may be a shepherd, but, but uh, people are not sheep, literally speaking. And yet, they're often referred to as sheep in the Bible. But if you took that literally, it it would be quite misleading. Even Jesus himself is spoken of as a lamb. But Jesus Christ is not literally a lamb. And never was. So, metaphors are figurative expressions. They are not intended to be taken literally. They are intended in Scripture, however, to convey spiritual truth that is absolutely real. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which one thing is likened to another, as I mentioned by speaking of it, as if it were the other. And there are numerous metaphors used of conversion or of those converted. Numerous metaphors used of conversion or of those converted. Some, for example, are death and resurrection, seed sprouting and growing into plants, slaves adopted as sons, day laborers, living stones, virgins, bond slaves, and as we already mentioned, sheep. Also vessels made of various materials, These are some of the metaphors used of conversion or those who are converted in the Bible. Now the metaphors, these metaphors that we mentioned are not literal but figurative expressions used to help us understand various aspects of conversion and of our relationship with God. And they're important tools in aiding our understanding. But we must always keep in mind the difference between metaphor and reality and realize that metaphors or analogies are usually limited in their application and eventually break down if carried too far. Let's take a closer look at some of these metaphors relating to conversion or to those who are converted. Let's look at Romans chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul Wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through bad baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we see that when we are baptized, we are actually enacting a metaphor, so to speak, of death or of dying and being buried. Paul said, how shall we who died? And he said, we were baptized into death. These are metaphors. So baptism is a metaphor of dying and death, being buried, And then, following that, as we come up out of the water of baptism, we are enacting a metaphor of being resurrected. And we are to experience, after baptism, as Paul wrote here in verse 4, a newness of life. A newness of life. A new life, you might say. So, here is a metaphor of dying and then being resurrected or you might say in a sense of being born again. Now let's go on with Romans chapter 6 and go on to verse 5. Paul goes on to say, "...for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now notice here that the metaphor of death and resurrection that constitutes baptism is not only to be reflected in our present circumstances, but it also anticipates the future, when we will be literally resurrected from the dead as Jesus Christ was after He physically died. Notice again in verse 5, it says, If we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, this is a reference to baptism and what it implies for the future. And then in verse 8, it says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So we see in this parable that Baptism reflects, or seeing this analogy, I should say, that, that baptism reflects death followed by a resurrection. Or you might liken it to a new birth on two different levels. One, a figurative and spiritual death and resurrection to a newness of life and how we think and act now in this life. And secondly, a literal resurrection to life after physical death. And that literal resurrection, as other scriptures tell us, will occur when Jesus Christ returns. That is, for those who have been converted in in this age and have remained faithful. Now let's examine another metaphor of conversion and the converted, this time from Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 24, it says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares?' He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no lest while you gather up the tares you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus is relating a, you might say, a story about a a man sowing seed in a field. Later, the disciples asked Jesus to explain this parable. Now, a parable is a kind of metaphor where, in a story, one thing is likened to another. And actually, a, a, a parable often may contain several Uh, metaphors, as this one does, and Jesus explained this parable, beginning with verse 37 of Matthew 13, he said, he he who sows the good seed is the son of man, so he's now explaining what these metaphors mean from from a literal standpoint. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So notice that Jesus explains exactly what each of these figurative expressions in this parable actually imply in terms of reality. Then he goes on to say in verse 40, "...therefore as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." So we see in this parable that the converted are likened to seed being sown, sprouting, and growing to maturity before being harvested. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of other metaphors of conversion and the converted used in Scripture, and we won't take time to go through all of them now. That would take several sermons probably. But if you're looking for a subject, for Bible study, you might think about making that a study project. Study all the different metaphors of conversion that are used in Scripture. If you're looking for a subject to study, might be a good one. To keep things in perspective, it's very important that we keep in mind the difference between reality and the metaphors used to describe reality. And the Bible clearly reveals a process of conversion and eventually becoming full-fledged members of the kingdom of God. Sometimes the metaphors, the parables help us understand various facets of that process. But there is a specific process that leads to salvation that is discussed in the Bible. And when that process is completed, its subjects will then be like God. Scriptures reveal, as hard to believe as that may sound, we read in 1 John 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are, the, we, we are children of God, Notice he says now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. When he is revealed that is when Jesus Christ returns Revealing Himself in a way that we uh, that He is not necessarily revealed at, at present; that is, He is not visibly with us, not uh, not in a way that we can actually see Him or touch Him physically and literally. But when He is revealed, it says, "We shall be like Him." That is, those who are in the resurrection at that time. Now, those people, or we, if we are included in those people who are to be in the first resurrection, will then be immortal spirit beings. Just like God is immortal, and He's a spirit being. So, those in the first resurrection will be immortal spirit beings like God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 53. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. Now, corruption here is a term for decay. And we all know that uh, our bodies wear out, everything physical decays eventually, including us. And it especially refers to what happens to the body after death. But here it says this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal, mortal is is uh, means subject to death, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There are other number of other scriptures that discuss how those who are in the resurrection will be given immortality. Now, regardless of what metaphors are used for illustration, the reality of the process leading to full, permanent, and irreversible membership in the divine family as a son of God is the same. One must hear the gospel, one must believe The gospel and one must repent. In Romans 10 and verse 14, Romans 10 and verse 14, it says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So we see that we, may, uh, that, uh, we cannot believe in something that we have not been given information about. The gospel is the message of God that has to do with our salvation. And everything in the Bible, in one way or another, is related directly to that message. It is that message. And you cannot believe that message if you've not heard it or read it. Going on in, verse, uh, going in Mark 1, verse 15, Mark 1 and verse 15, Jesus was preaching and he said to them, uh, to his uh, disciples, he said, Actually, I believe this is Mark 16. I think I forgot to put the six here. Mark 16, verse 15. He said to his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice he said they were to preach the gospel and he said those who believe the gospel will be and are baptized. Now this, of course, implies, implies genuine belief and, and other things as we'll get to in a minute. But for those who, who believe and are baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned, he said. Now, this scripture implies that if one is to avoid God's condemnation, sooner or later he must come to believe the gospel. Because without that faith, without believing the gospel, there is no salvation. And believing the gospel implies repentance. Believing the gospel implies repentance. Repentance is, an, is a requirement for, va- uh, for a valid baptism. Just getting uh, uh, dunked in, in, in a tub of water or a pool of some kind doesn't really mean anything if you have not repented in terms of salvation. In Acts two and verse thirty-eight, Acts two and verse thirty-eight, Peter said to them, "Repent." every one of you uh, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice he said, repent and then be baptized, and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now after repentance and baptism comes the laying on of hands and receiving of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts chapter 8, Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit." So this is the usual process for a conversion, hearing the gospel, believing it, repenting of one's sins, being baptized and having hands laid on and receiving the Holy Spirit. When one meets these requirements, then he or she has been qualified for salvation by God through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. It's very important to understand that when one has met these requirements, he or she has been qualified for salvation by God through His grace by faith in Jesus Christ. As we read in Colossians 1, verse 12, Colossians 1 and verse 12, Paul wrote thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Notice he didn't say, you've qualified yourself. He said the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So, in a, in a limited sense, when you have been baptized, you have been qualified for salvation, you, and you have been, in a limited way, delivered into the kingdom of the Son of, of God. As it goes on to say in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So when you have gone through this process and you're baptized, you have the laying on of hands and receiving of the Holy Spirit, you are forgiven of your sins, and in that sense you have been saved. You no longer have the death penalty Hanging over your head, so to speak. You've been saved from that death penalty. And you have been qualified by God to become a part of his kingdom. You you, in fact, are a part of his kingdom. However, and this is something that is often overlooked or completely misunderstood or even denied. To remain under God's grace, one must then grow and bear fruit spiritually. This is another aspect of the path to ultimate and final salvation that many do not understand. In fact, many reject it. But this is a clear teaching of the Bible. In John 15 and verse 1, John 15, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Notice he said that he is the vine, and every branch in him that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, he said to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Speaking to his disciples, those who are uh, converted, you might say. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So even though we have salvation, initial salvation, at the time of our baptism, if it's a valid baptism, there is yet more to do before we have ultimate and final salvation. It's You might compare it to Israel coming out of Egypt. Israel was saved from the death angel when the it passed over them on the night of the Passover, and then they left Egypt and they were saved at that time. But they had not entered the promised land and they had a long way to go before they got there. And as you know, most of them rebelled in the wilderness and they fell in the wilderness and never made it to the promised land because they were rebellious and they did not continue in faith. And so even though we we are under God's grace and we have Salvation, in a sense, we also have to remain faithful if we are going to ultimately be in the kingdom of God. Peter warns us in Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter three and verse 17. He said, "You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked." Beware, he said, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led into error. It goes on to say, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, living faithfully before God as we are in the flesh requires putting faith to death the deeds of the flesh. Even though we, we have made a profession of faith in Christ and we have repented of our sins and we've been baptized, we've had hands laid on receiving the Holy Spirit, we're still made of flesh. We still have a fleshly mind. To contend with, and carnal thoughts, and impulses, and we are subject to sin. We we uh, we uh, may be and should be striving not to sin, but but uh, even striving to overcome sin, we still make mistakes. We still commit sins at times but we have to continue to fight against our carnality. As we read in Romans 8, verse 13, Romans 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's writing to people in the church here. He's writing to people in the church, and he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you just follow your fleshly impulses, then you will perish. But he said, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Talking about living in the kingdom of God. We're to be growing in faith and knowledge, becoming more and more like Christ in terms of character. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 and verse 17 to work all uncleanness with godliness. Notice he's telling the people in the church that they're not to live like the rest of the world lives, like they were living before their conversion. He said, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct Concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is a spiritual battle. This is something that we must accomplish. Putting off the old man, so to speak, and being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new man. And this takes a lot of effort on our part, along with the help of God's spirit. To have final salvation, one must remain faithful throughout his lifetime, persevering until death. In Galatians 6, verse 7, it says, Galatians 6 and verse 7, do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap will reap what we sow. And if we're sowing to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. And he says, we will reap that in due season if we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. In other words, if we continue on the path of salvation, commitment to God and obedience to Him that we set out on at the time of our baptism. In Hebrews 10, verse 35, Hebrews 10, verse 35, it says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Notice what he said. He said, do not cast away your confidence or your beliefs, your faith, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is quoting the scripture, actually. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. Perdition means destruction. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. In Romans 11 and verse 22, Romans 11 and verse 22, it says, Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. severity, but toward you goodness. He's speaking of physical Israel, on uh, those who fell among the Israelites severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Notice, if you don't continue in his goodness, you will be cut off. So if one is genuinely converted and endures through these steps, then in the resurrection, he will live again. He will live again. As we read in Job 14, Job 14, verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at His coming. Those included in the first resurrection, as it's referred to, the time of the resurrection at Christ's return, spoken of in other scriptures of the first resurrection, will then be no longer flesh and blood, but will have a spiritual body like that of Jesus Christ in His glory. Each of them will be immortal and a son of God for eternity, bearing the very likeness and nature of God Himself. As we read in Romans 8, verse 16. Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself or itself as it should be translated, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And as we read in verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Philippians 3 and verse 20, Philippians 3 and verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself." And in John 3 and verse 2, as we read earlier, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, or we shall see Him as He is. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That you may be partakers of the divine nature. Think about what that means. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So important steps toward that end is conversion, which requires belief in the gospel and repentance, baptism, and receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, God does not limit himself to the use of one metaphor for conversion or the converted. As shown above, he uses many metaphors to describe this process. And the same principle applies to many other subjects of Scripture. Satan, for example, is referred to in various places as a serpent, a lion, the morning star, and a self-styled angel of light, besides other terms applying to him. At the same time, God is not necessarily limited to one use for a particular metaphor. Among the uses of lion as a metaphor, besides a metaphor referring to Satan, it's also used as a metaphor of Judah, of Israel, of God, of Pharaoh, and of Jesus Christ. Now, another metaphor used in Scripture is that of birth. The metaphor of birth also has multiple uses. For example, in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 18, it's used as a metaphor of God as creator of Israel. As we read in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 18, of the rock who begot you, Now, here is God speaking to Israel. And here in this verse, he says, of the rock. Now, here, rock is being used as a metaphor for God. But he says, of the rock who begot you. Begettle has to do with conception and development toward, um, toward the time of birth. It goes on to say, are you unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you? So he's speaking to Israel and referring to himself as the God who begot them and who fathered them. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Psalm 90, verse 2, God is said to have brought forth the mountains and given birth to to the world, which is a, another metaphor in this case of physical creation, the physical creation of the of the world. In Isaiah, birth is used as a metaphor for the yet future deliverance and conversion of Israel. In Isaiah 66, beginning with verse 6, it says, Isaiah 66 and verse 6, the sound of noise from the city a voice from the temple the voice of the lord who fully repays his enemies now this is referring to the time of the return of jesus christ it's a prophecy of that those events associated with that and it says in verse 7 before she was in labor she gave birth before her pain came she delivered a male child Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Now, here's a a metaphor of Israel, the nation spoken of here as a woman, giving birth to children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, speaking of Israel, after she is restored, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed, and on her knees you shall be carried, and be uh, dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem." So here we see various references to conception and birth associated with the restoration of Israel following the return of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the metaphor of himself as a father in relation to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14. He said, I do not write these things to shame you but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, obviously, Paul was not literally, physically their father. They were not, in a literal sense, his children and he certainly had not begotten them in a literal sense. But yet he speaks in these metaphors as a father to children, as one who had begotten them, that is, sired them. And Paul also speaks in verse 17 of the same Chapter 1 Corinthians 4, he speaks of Timothy as his son in the Lord. As his son in the Lord. He uses the simile, which a simile is similar to a metaphor, except it employs the word as or like, which a metaphor does not. But Tim, uh, Paul uses the uh, simile of a nursing mother cherishing her children and a loving father exhorting and comforting his children as a description of his relationship with the Christians in uh, Thessalonica. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. goes on to say in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 2, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Paul uses the metaphor of himself as a mother in labor toward the Galatians, his children. In Galatians 4 and verse 19, Galatians 4 and verse 19, he said, My little children in whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Moses Moses asked God in Numbers 11 verse 12, Moses asked God, Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child? Now the reason I've gone through all of these examples is to show you that it is a mistake to take what is figurative literally, as it is just as much a mistake to interpret that which is literal as having only a figurative or symbolic meaning. And it's also a mistake to assume that a figurative expression must always have the same meaning. The fact is, in addition to other ways, birth can be and is used in Scripture both as a metaphor of conversion and of the resurrection. And as we continue this discussion further at a later time, I plan to establish these points very clearly from the Scriptures.